WNYC Studios is supported by Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, Lulu here. Whether we are romping through science, music, politics, technology, or feelings, we seek to leave you seeing the world anew. Radiolab adventures right on the edge of what we think we know, wherever you get podcasts. It's the Brian Lehrer Show on WNYC. Good morning, everyone. So if you did nothing else yesterday but follow a Donald Trump legal affairs breaking news sticker, you would not have been bored. A New York judge, as you probably heard, refused to let Trump post a $100 million bond to cover the $455 million in civil suit judgment judgments against him. Trump might have to post the whole thing while the appeals of his cases proceed, which might even mean selling some of his buildings or other properties. Also yesterday, the United States Supreme Court in a decision that you probably heard the headline on and that surprised and disappointed many legal analysts, uh, the Supreme Court announced yesterday that it will hear Trump's claim of immunity from any criminal responsibility for anything one does as president, even inciting an insurrection, and even, his lawyers argued, if he were to order the Navy to assassinate a political rival. Hello, Putin and Navalny. Maybe that will become legal in the United States of America. And then last night, a judge in Illinois became the latest to remove Trump from the ballot in that state under the insurrection clause of the Constitution. The Supreme Court is already currently considering a case involving that from Colorado. So what just happened here in the last 24 hours? What does it all add up to legally? financially, and maybe most important, politically. With us now, Andrea Bernstein, journalist reporting on Trump legal matters for NPR, host of the podcasts Will Be Wild about January 6th and Trump Inc., the WNYC podcast about the intersection of Trump's financial interests and the public interest, and author of the book American Oligarchs, The Kushners, The Trumps, and the Marriage of Money and Power. And Andrea had a New York Times op-ed this month called How Trump Turns His Courtroom Losses into Wins. Hey, Andrea, always great to have you on the show. Hey, Brian, great talking to you. Let's start with this courtroom loss in New York yesterday on how much bond he has to post to cover his business fraud judgment and his sexual assault and defamation judgment. What just happened here? So Trump has until March 25th to put up the money or the New York Attorney General, Letitia James, can seize an asset. So the clock is rapidly ticking. And uh, Trump and his lawyers went to the first department, which is the confusingly named first level of appeals court in New York, and asked for uh, to be allowed to pay a $100 million bond 
and to stay certain other provisions, including provisions that he can't get a loan, he and his sons can't run his business, etc. And they convinced the judge, a single judge on the appeals court, it will be argued before a panel, to um, stay this sort of business organization aspect. So they can still apply for loans, they can still run the business, but they still have to pay the money, which is 400 and upwards of 450 billions of dollars with interest accruing at the rate of $100,000 a day. Whoa. So they're still on the hook for that. Uh, they still have to figure out how to pay it, even though they are trying to get that stayed. Right. And the reason for the bond is that if he eventually loses the appeals, the legal system needs to have access to the money to pay the damages he would owe, right? Correct. And he gets to gets to appeal that bond ruling, as you said, so he doesn't have to put up any money quite yet. But Andrea, for you who reported on Trump's businesses in the uh, Trump Inc. podcast series, do you have a take on how much money he has in cash or property? <laughs> I mean, you noted in your Times op-ed that Trump has long sought to convince people he has more money than he really does. I mean, forever. That is his business model. His business model is, I'm a great success. Come join me. You will be successful, too, which is also sort of his political model as well. And, you know, that is what is at, at issue. Um, there are various valuations. I think uh, Forbes sort of now puts them at upwards of $3 billion. You know, Trump said in a deposition in the trial that he had $400 million in cash. And then he went on to say how unusual that is for a developer. Most developers don't have cash. He has cash. So now he's saying he, he doesn't have $400 million in cash, or at least $400 million that he wishes to pay back the state of New York. Uh, so we will see. I mean, in fairness, to sell a large asset takes some time. Uh, it, he, he recently sold a large asset. He recently sold the uh, uh, Trump International Hotel lease in Washington, D.C. for about, I think, $360 million. But those negotiations take time. So it's true they don't just take a month. You also noted in the op-ed that Trump uses each of these losses in court to raise lots of money from his supporters. Can he use campaign money that people donated to pay legal bills or to pay legal judgments? I mean, nothing is in theory ruled out. Uh, you know, having a foreign benefactor put up the money is not ruled out. Uh, hasn't happened yet, and it does seem like Trump is trying to go a more traditional route by saying he could put up 100 million dollar bond. Uh, so, you know, we just don't exactly know. There's also this um, pending stock sale coming up with his uh, uh, social media company that he's forming that could give him access to quite a bit of money. I mean, he has assets. Without a doubt, he has assets, even though he doesn't have the assets that he would like people to think he has. Mm -hmm. uh, he does have access to money eventually. How much if you've reported on this, is his fundraising keeping up with his legal system bills? And I mean just his campaign fundraising, because we all know he's using these court appearances and everything else as political events. I mean, it's a complicated question. His legal bills are being paid by his political action committees. Uh, last year, 2023, they paid $50 million. 
Obviously, 2024 has already been exceedingly active, so how much they would pay this year, those are not his campaign committee, those are separate committees. Then there's a question of what happens if his daughter-in-law, Laura Trump, becomes head of the RNC or, or co-head of the RNC? What happens to the money then? I mean, without a doubt, he's considered these legal cases, um, you know, as, as intric intricately <laughs> involved in his campaign. I mean, one of the reasons that he was understood to have announced so early back when he did um, right after the midterms was that he had the idea that if he was a declared candidate for president, he couldn't be indicted or might not be able to be indicted. And certainly what we've seen is he's used his candidacy and is using it at every turn to say these courtroom rules can apply or shouldn't be applying or shouldn't be applying now to him. One of the things you noted in your Times op-ed and I should say you were in the courtroom covering both the E. Jean Carroll sexual assault and defamation trial and the business fraud trial, right? Oh, yes. <laughs> uh, and one of the things that you noted about that experience in your Times op-ed was that he complained about having to be at those courthouses rather than campaigning, but he actually didn't have to be there. So why was he? I mean, he, I mean, one can only assume, and you know, this really kind of surprised me when in the business trial, because, you know, prior to the business fraud trial, there had already been two Trump or Trump company related trials. His company was convicted in 2022 of 17 fraud felonies. That was in connection with the uh, paying employees and untaxed benefits. So not him personally, but his company. Uh, and then last spring was the first E. Jean Carroll defamation case, and he stayed far away from those. And I just thought, oh, you know, why would you want to be associated with these, you know, crimes of lying and, and sexual assault if you're running for president? So it sort of seemed logical to me who, as someone who's covered campaigns for a long time to stay away. But of course, that is old thinking. Uh, so I was surprised when Trump showed up for the business trial and showed up and showed up and showed up. Such boring testimony. Donald Trump would sit in this room listening to it and then go out in the hallway where, you know, he is he could set up his shot. So there were these barricades that were set up for his pro uh, protection. And he would invariably come out the door of the hallway, stand behind the barricade with his legal team and kind of call down to the reporters from this. So the shot was always Trump behind a barricade, which, you know, sort of conjures up jail bars or something. And he would say, I should be in Iowa, I should be in New Hampshire, I shouldn't be here. It looked like it was the way that he had decided was most effective to reach those primary voters with this message of sort of grievance, I'm the victim here, I'm the one who's coming after, and you know, sort of doing this kind of Trump Jedi mind trick, which he always does, which is, they're coming after me, therefore I'm going to represent you in all the ways that they, undefined they, are coming after his, his voters. So he used that to great effect. Uh, he certainly has raised money over it. And I mean, look how well he's doing. And, and then what you see is sort of all these Republican Party officials when questioned, Lee Stefanik, even Nikki Haley initially, they're sort of saying, well, I don't know if the allegations are true. And then you kind of just cast doubt on the whole court system. And that too benefits Trump in this environment. Let's go on. And my guest is Andrea Bernstein, who's long been reporting 
on Donald Trump, his business interests, as well as his politics for WNYC and NPR and others. Let's go on to the Supreme Court and the immunity case. I'll note you're a journalist, not a lawyer, but are you surprised they took that case yesterday? Uh, you know, I mean, I've, I've heard I've heard arguments <laughs> that the Supreme Court, uh, and you might recall that um, you didn't mention it in the, in the run-up, but, you know, we did a, a podcast with ProPublica and on the media on Leonard Leo and the conservative movement of the Supreme Court. So I've spent a lot of time thinking about the Supreme Court, and, and not much that they do surprises me. Uh, I heard, have heard both arguments. One is that they were just going to... Um, let the D.C. appeals court ruling stand, let the trial go forward and say, come back to us when it's over. And then the other one, equally compelling, were the Supreme Court, this is a matter of great moment, we have to weigh in. That seems to be consistent with, you know, sort of how, I mean, I've watched Trump go to the U.S. Supreme Court uh, twice in just the New York cases. I just looked it up this morning. In the Trump v. Vance case, which was the case while he was president, and he was arguing that then Manhattan DA Cyrus Vance could not get his tax returns because he was president of the United States, that case went to the Supreme Court for oral arguments the first time in May of 2020. It was decided in July of 2020. So it was a similar argument. When you have a president, a president is the executive. The executive is the president. It's not like he can sort of hand his job off to somebody else while he attends to criminal matters. So he's making the case again. Now, he has lost it twice, but it does seem that the Supreme Court wants to weigh in and is going to weigh in because they say this is a a matter of great moment. And they are sort of, you know, ignoring the, forgive the pun, elephant in the room, which is that having this case, it is now February, having it not decided until likely the end of June is a great win for Trump because he, the amount of time that you can shoehorn a trial before the election and have the American people know in this sort of crucible of the criminal justice system where you have the prosecution and the defense and the judge and the jury which is supposed to establish truth in this country, to have that process go forward is extremely tight. Right. So they're going to hear it in April, they say, um, and then the ruling could come down shortly after that, maybe in early May or not till the end of the Supreme Court's term, which is at the very end of June. And when they rule, assuming that they... uh, do not give him immunity from anything that he did criminally as president, because that's the going assumption, even though they took the case. When they make that decision, it's going to matter a lot, uh, apparently, to the presidential race. I want to replay a clip that we've used before of Trump's attorney in this case in front of the appeals court panel actually arguing in this exchange that Trump as president could order the Navy Se- the Navy's SEAL Team 6 to assassinate a political rival and not be held criminally responsible. This begins with the judge's question. Could a president order SEAL Team 6 to assassinate a political rival? That's an official act in order to SEAL Team 6? He he would have to be and would speedily be, you know, uh, uh, impeached and convicted before the criminal prosecution. But if you weren't, there would be no criminal prosecution, no criminal liability for that? Chief Justice's opinion in murder against Madison and uh, uh, and our Constitution and the plain language of the impeachment judgment clause all clearly presuppose that what the founders were concerned about was not. I asked you a yes or no question. 
Could a president who ordered SEAL Team 6 to assassinate a political rival who was not impeached, would he be subject to criminal prosecution? If he were impeached and convicted first. And so, so your answer is, is, no. is My answer is qualified yes. Qualified yes, said the Trump lawyer, meaning a president would have to be impeached. And we know that, you know, politics being what they are, takes two-thirds of the Senate to convict uh, uh, an impeached president, which is the standard that the lawyer was upholding there, the conviction in the Senate, not just the impeachment. Um, And we know that Trump was impeached for inciting an insurrection, and there were enough pro-Trump Republicans in the Senate that he wasn't convicted. Uh, And so it's very hard to convict a president in the Senate of anything that he's impeached for. And so if that conviction doesn't happen, then a president could assassinate a political rival, rob a bank. I mean, it's just, it's inconceivable that the Supreme Court, even the conservative Trump appointed justices on the Supreme Court would say that's okay. One would think, and in fact, you know, there's this such a rhyming of history here, because when Trump went off in the Trump v. Vance case, where he was trying to keep those records away from Vance, the argument you may recall was, in the same level, the appeals court judges asked Trump's lawyer, well, what if the president shot somebody on Fifth Avenue? Are you saying the DA couldn't investigate? And the answer was, not so long as he's president. So it's a it's a similar argument and, and a consistent argument that they're making. I mean, I think one of the things that strikes me about the this uh, U.S. Supreme Court, I, in reading the obituaries of Sandra Day O'Connor, uh, they noted that she'd come from the uh, being a legislator in Arizona, and how the courts have really moved to to being people who don't have any political background or history in politics, uh, for better or worse. But in this case, there seems to be a real, uh, just, uh, I don't know if I want to say ignorance, but but of political consequences. But the court is not explaining how all of these delays in the world in which we live could redound to affect the legal case. So they are just sort of operating as if they're operating in a normal judicial case right. where a clock isn't running out, Right. where you, you, know, you could have somebody in the Oval right. Office that decides to end the case. Meaning, to be specific, that if the justices refused yesterday to take this case and let the lower court ruling stand, then Trump would have been declared to not have immunity. And the um, January 6th, Jack Smith trial could have started while the campaign is still in a relatively early phase. (laughs) This way, even if they say that eventually that he doesn't have immunity, uh, it would be very difficult to start that trial in the heat of the general election after the primary season. And so it works to Trump's benefit. So briefly, the Illinois ruling last night, ruling number three that came yesterday, that Trump is off the ballot there for violating the insurrection clause of the U.S. Constitution. This does not take effect immediately, but early voting has already begun, I understand, for the Republican primary there, and this could take effect uh, while the voting is going on. So does the Supreme Court get to fold this into the Colorado case that they're hearing on the same question? Or does this have to come up through the system separately? Again, a timeline issue, if you know. I mean, my understanding of, you know, those arguments, which I listened to carefully, was that uh, at least eight of the justices were not inclined to allow individual states to decide this. 
And that that seems to be, you know, coming, I mean, you know, everyone says imminently, I don't know what imminently means for this court. Uh, But it seems unlikely that the U.S. Supreme Court would allow any individual state to take this matter into their hands because of the way they really seemed across the board to be uh, questioning this case. Um, Just just a footnote on the uh, on the Jack Smith trial. I mean, I, I was in the courtroom in the New York criminal case, this is the case where um, Alvin Bragg is charging Trump essentially with election interference in 2016 by uh, paying money to Michael Cohen to reimburse him for Stormy Daniels uh, and then lying about in their business records about what that was. That trial could be six to eight weeks. It's to start at the end of March. So you're looking at much of April and May in that courtroom, uh, and it's a criminal trial, and criminal defendants definitely, uh, in generally, are required to show up. So that's sort of two months of the campaign in a courtroom, and then think about the reality of this. I mean, say the Supreme Court rules against Mr. Trump and the immunity claim, and the trial gets scheduled for August (laughs) on an aggressive schedule. There's Trump in another trial, which can take two months, being in a courtroom through the in, what is the, normally the entire general election season. Mm. It is, um, the reality of that really set, it set in for me. It's like, oh my goodness, we're gonna be here day after day after day with Mr. Trump in a criminal trial until it's resolved as the campaign moves forward. And then the judge will have to decide whether the trial should be postponed so it doesn't interfere with the general election or uh, that the general election is going to have to take a back seat so it doesn't interfere with the trial. And that's going to be a very big deal, no matter how it's decided, if we get to that point. And Andrea Bernstein, journalist reporting on Trump legal matters for NPR, host of many podcasts, author of the book American Oligarchs, The Kushners, The Trumps, and The Marriage of Money and Power. And check out her New York Times op-ed called How Trump Turns His Courtroom Losses into wins. Thanks, Andrea. Thank you, Ryan.